0: Scrapper fans, and welcome to the fourth installment of the December Delight that is Rerun the Rivalry. The series within the Let Me Tell You Something oeuvre, in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host,
1: Simon Cross,
0: discuss every significant singles match between two individuals this year. It is Brian Danielson against Nigel McGuinness, the battle for supremacy in Ring of Honor between the years 2006 and 2009. Simon We're at the end of the first block of matches, I suppose, but it doesn't feel to me to give it away as too much as, like, the ending chapter of a quadrilogy, more like an epilogue of sorts. But, that's just my initial opinion, let's explain where we are, what's at stake, and what the stipulations
1: are. So, we are at St. Paul Armoury in Minnesota, date of the 25th of August 2006, The title of the event is Epic Encounter 2, sadly not subtitled Electric Boogaloo, but we move. It's a two out of three falls match with the Ring of Honor World title at stake.
0: So there's obvious words that we could use to describe this match that on your bingo card you'd be scrubbing out already, but let's try and evolve that, avoid that. Avoid that and evolve. Yes, evolve from that. Because, out of all the matches that these guys have with each other, despite this being by far the longest, it really does feel like a minor part of their story. And I think the reasons why are that it was part of a larger narrative for Brian Danielson for that weekend. They'd literally just had their unified match two weeks earlier, but... It was in an awkward period in between where it's more likely than not that pretty much every fan in the crowd hadn't seen that match. So you couldn't do layered callbacks to it necessarily, although they do do some callbacks. And I think because of the nature of how they book this match, I mean we'll give it away now, it goes to a one-all draw with a time limit, so they go an hour. That ultimately prevents them from reaching the full potential of what we've seen from them in their three previous matches, in particular their unified match. Would you agree with me, God? Initial assessments.
1: I would. However, I think... Inter- I can't think of a similar example off the top of my head, but I know we've witnessed them. I think, considering the circumstances they were in, they did incredibly well. Brian had clearly been wearing out his Masanobu Fushi tapes before this match. And at long-time listeners will know... And I am sorry, I'm going to have to tick something off the big bingo card. I absolutely love Masanobu Fushi but probably not as much as Daniel Bryan loves Masanobu Fushi.
0: <laughs> and how much does Brian Danielson love Masanobu Fushi
1: as well? Indeed. I WWE-ified him there. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies.
0: <laughs> One thing I will say, actually, on reflection, watching these matches as well, is another reason I think you can make the case for Brian Danielson being maybe the best wrestler of all time is his versatility as to what he has to be in the ring and what's being asked of him. Because, as I've been observing throughout the series of these matches it has been him as the dominant champion like in the old NWA world champion mold and this whole weekend was Brian Danielson trying to live his Ric Flair, Harley Race dream because straight after this show the show after he goes up against Colt Banner in another 2 out of 3 falls match that also goes 60 minutes so over the course of 2 nights Danielson wrestles 120 minutes and he spends something like 50 minutes of those during the Colt Cabana match with a separated shoulder which he implies he has in this match. Yes. And so this is the match that feels more than anything that Nigel McGuinness is merely a supporting player, and it feels so relatively unimportant, other than how. He swarms Danielson right at the start playing off his still lingering anger at what Danielson how Danielson messed him up at unified and Danielson's all cock of the walk and McGuinness is still plastered up and scarred from the match and so he immediately swarms Danielson and Danielson has to take time out very early on and then he brings it to his pace and will get into it with
1: his reliance on the headlocks <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've got... My first note was literally uh, Nigel's black eye. And I'm like, oh... You know in Formula One when someone's, like, done their front wing on, like, turn one of a corner and they've got to get the whole lap to get to the pit lane to get it fixed? Kind of reminded me of that a little bit.
0: Except your lap lasts 60 minutes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you can tell they're in the position where most of the American audience hasn't seen their match in the uk yet because they sort of do an insincere handshake so i don't know if they're trying to imply that like we still hate each other after that match or they're trying to work the angle of well these guys haven't seen that match yet but they know we hate each other
0: but they also know i mean if they've read the results and everything they know that it seems nigel McGuinness has now made the baby face turn mm. And so we don't get that Nigel McGuinness that was in the first two matches on American soil, either that cocky, cheating within the pure rules style, or just, I'm coming in with nothing to lose. Yeah. Obviously, he was phasing towards that from sort of the second match onwards. But I think there was also that sense of Nigel not being quite sure what his style of wrestler is now at this point yet. Mm. He can't go back to the the Nigel that he'd been for the year before. And Danielson really, I think, takes the lead in this match and really is working the crowd as much as he's working against Nigel McGuinness. Because also, this is a thing that you've got to take into account with Ring of Honor. As much as it meant to the really passionate fans, it was still relatively small scale. I mean, I was looking at it because it looks like they're in the same place they were at for the first two matches. Yeah, But it's not. It's another armory, convention hall local community center space. There will be Ring of Honor fans there, but there will also just be locals who go to see wrestling shows if they're in town. And Danielson is in clear battle with them When he starts going to the headlock, and there are some fans, and this would happen at many a Ring of Honor show in the first few years, the fans that have been more conditioned by the Attitude Era, ECW, even the super indie style of high spots and faster pace and shorter matches... Mm. they probably haven't witnessed a 60 minute two out of three force technical wrestling match and they start booing and going boring and they think the crowd will go with them but they don't realize that they're outnumbered in ring of honor by the roh bots who have that more let's say hipstery stance of what good wrestling is yeah and so they get drowned out somewhat and then they're kind of in collision with that fan because Brian Danielson's like, well, now I'm. I think he literally says at one point, "I'm not leaving this headlock for 60 minutes." And the crowd
1: go aker pot for it for the most part.
0: Yeah, well, it seems like there's smatterings of people in the crowd that really play up to it and start cheering every time a headlock's applied. And then we get into a, we can get into a massive debate because there's a moment where it seems like we're out of the headlock period and instead. That when Dawson finally gets control back after Nigel starts going after him, he puts him in a chin lock, and the crowd pops for that. And I'm 95% sure that Nigel yells out, "He does." It's not a headlock; it's a chin lock.
1: Yeah, he does. Whilst in the holds, because you can, if you, it's very quick. But and obviously, you can get away, not get away with it. Could easily confuse it with what people do in chin locks they do that finger wag straight away once it's in. I guess because the ref typically asks straight away. But he, he's wagging like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> I think that's the moment uh, to take listeners behind the curtain a little bit. When I text Lorcan whilst watching this match, I, that is the moment I text to you, I love Nigel, because that was just the kind of pedantry that um, I've come to know, get with Nigel McGuinness on commentary. And it's, it's, it's weird doing this series watching that Nigel's always been this way, and then just falling more and more in love with him because of it.
0: And the recurring theme throughout these matches has been McGuinness hitting Danielson with Danielson's own moves, like applying cattle mutilation, hitting him with downed elbows, as is the finish to this portion of the match. And very, very rarely does Danielson do the same to McGuinness. There's one instance in this match where he hits him with the Tower of London, I think. Yeah. But other than that, it's another one of those things where it's like McGuinness is obsessed with Danielson and Danielson less so McGuinness. It's that old Mad Men meme, I feel sorry for you. I don't think about you at all. And that is really where where it continues to go, really, as the series goes on. But it is funny that we are... I guess McGuinness is all of us, slightly in awe of Danielson, but wanting to be the one to take him down. Yeah. But again, with this match, he's felt more like a supporting player, I said, because the crowd's not carried over on the unified wave that he has. He does start to have that after this run. But for this match, he really does, except for the final straight where he's coming close to beating Danielson he doesn't really feel that important like you could have plugged anyone else into this match and it was just Brian go out there and have a 60 minute 2 out of 3 falls match Mm. I mean again what really the only explicit reference to a specific spot within Unified is when they do the ring post spot and that probably has fed out to people because that was the thing everyone was talking about afterwards
1: I, I still remember in the power slam issue I read which covered Unified I was struck, and obviously not following Ring of Honor really at the, time, at the time, apart from just reading the Power Slam reports, I was struck by the visual of McGuinness' his crimson mask. So I guess that's, what I'm saying is that still, which probably in the two weeks, has like fluid across the internet. And everyone will go, oh, how did he get busted open? Blah, 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 blah.
0: But yeah, I think the problem I've always had with long matches, IMM a matches, 60-minute tie matches, for the most part, is them sh- just stretching out the same number of moves that they would do in a regular match. Just placing it in 60 minutes. So, instead of it being Danielson controlling things on the map for 7 or 8 minutes at the start, it's Danielson controlling things on the map for 25 minutes at the start. Mm. And... I think because of that, they can't carry the crowd on a wave of, like, a fever pitch that they were at for pretty much all of the unified match. And I think that's exemplified by the finishing straight, because, again, the finishing straight takes longer. It's obviously at that point that everyone's thinking, okay, this has 60-minute draw written all over it, because otherwise, why would they be going this long? Yeah. They mentioned it in commentary that Ring of Honor did have Danielson beat Roderick Strong in, like, 56 minutes, and that is good booking. So there's always that possibility within it.
1: You've got to get. It's like doing two out of three falls match. Sometimes you have to do the two straights because everyone will go, "Wow!" Well, in this scenario, people would have gone, "Well, McGuinness has lost the first fall, so he's clearly going to win the next fall, so then that they can get to the third fall." So that, you know, there's an element of cynicism there.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ring of Honor started doing that after this when the Briscoe brothers had their run in 2007 where they were booked pretty much as strong as tag team champs as Danielson's booked as a singles champ at this point and one of the signs of their dominance is that whenever they had two out of three falls matches they won all but the last one in two straight falls even when they were feuding with Kevin Steen and El Generico which is another thing we could do for rerun the rivalry possibly they won the two out of three falls match in two straight falls but that wasn't established yet at this point so it was just the rules of two out of three falls matches is you got to go two out of three falls. So just as the rules in Iron Man matches is they've got to be on equal or one fall off from each other with one minute left to go in the match. So it's just, how do we get to that 59th minute? Yeah. I will say that I think Dangerson obviously improved upon it because the 60-minute match that he has with Hangman Page was one of the best matches of, was that 2021 or 2022? Whatever year it was, it was one of the best matches of that. So the
1: first one would be Winter is Coming 2021, one thinks that would have been December time
0: wouldn't it because he won it at full gear didn't he he won the world title at full gear and Danielson was like his first big defence so yeah it would have been around December time Yeah, and that was again the cocky Danielson and I think I didn't get to finish that point I was saying earlier where Danielson his versatility is because he was this dominant champion during all this time in Ring of Honor but he never with the exception of maybe three matches got to play that role within WWE yeah because of his size, obviously, in comparison, and because Vince never saw him as that, never thought you could book him as that. Yeah. So the only times he was really that dominant figure was probably in that Sheamus 2 out of 3 falls match, which is like the, our mascot of a match, As if our podcast <laughs> should be associated with any match, it maybe should be that one, with how much we bring it up compared to everyone else's me- recollection of that match. And then after that, there's the... The Covey Kingston match, I suppose, was the other one where he uh, was the dominant figure. And that worked because they had to play up Kingston as the underdog babyface. And the only other time I can remember Danielson being like the cocky, overpowering heel. And literally was only for like two or three minutes. And it was the final two or three minutes of the Elimination Chamber match where it was down to him and Santino Marella. And even then, Morella got as close as he's ever got to winning the world titles
1: <laughs> at the expense. I think I watched that one live, and I remember genuinely for a microsecond believing when Santino hit that uh, salute headbutt. Well,
0: there's a sign of just how good Danielson is, and how good Morella had been in getting this character over with the crowd. Yeah. Well, the one thing they do give McGinnis in this match is they give him his first clean-as-a-whistle proper victory over Danielson in the second fall by having him submit to a key lock hold after spending all the time targeting the arm even the point where the one spot that they do repeat from unified which is the the threat of them doing the ramming into the post but instead this time it's McGuinness but he only rams Danielson's arm into the post and then Danielson just spends the whole of the rest of the match trying to like save his arm and even having the referee pull it in
1: to join. which should a referee be really allowed to do I wonder. Oh, I mean, I guess they don't have a trainer at ringside, so I guess that's the closest they can to that trainer spot.
0: In a football match, does a referee ever, like, help a player who's got cramp if they're the one nearest to them?
1: No, but but that's a team sport, isn't it? So that's different.
0: Yeah, well, sometimes the opponents will do it if they're the ones nearest. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. that's just to hurry them up. Mm. I want to add, add something to your clean win point about McGuinness. Yes, it's clean. No debate there. But the commentators do, I, I don't know if it's at the time, but throughout the course of the match, they do mention, well, maybe you'll tap out earlier just to like save yourself for the next fall. So there, there is a narrative thread of it. Even though it's clean, it's sort of actually qualified because Danielson's in a two out of three falls match. He's one fall up. Maybe he's just saving himself. So even with that, and that, that feeds into the points you've made earlier of like, Danielson being portrayed so much above McGuinness, re- effectively.
0: I don't know if it's above him, but just kind of...
1: Yeah, maybe it's above him, but he's in the sense that he's above everyone. That's like a glass ceiling kind of thing, and Nigel's cracked it, but he's not got through it, is the way yeah. I'd, I'd see it. Yeah. But, yeah, even McGuinness's clean submission fall has an air about it because of the mm. way the commentators have built it up, effectively.
0: It's strategic on Danielson's part as much as anything.
1: Yeah. And again,
0: so they give him the visual victory at the end by him elbowing Danielson seemingly into unconsciousness, but the moment that he knocks him into unconsciousness was maybe one hour, one second into the match. Exactly.
1: It's like SummerSlam 2006, Randy Orton getting that visual pin over Hulk Hogan, and obviously backstage is, that's all you're getting, brother, brother. Yeah. (laughs) Hulk and SummerSlam don't mix.
0: I don't think Danielson was pulling a Hogan in this situation. No,
1: no, 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 no. What I mean is, okay, we want him to have that, but the other person's winning, so let's give him this.
0: Like I said, it's like a, it's like it feels so much like an epilogue that it's just a little send-off, and Nigel McGuinness gets to walk out having knocked Danielson into unconsciousness the same way Danielson did, and then getting his pure belt back, but not the title back as like a memento, allowing McGuinness to be magnanimous in loss or de- or victory or drawing, depending on how you look at it, like showing concern for Danielson. So again, putting him over to the American audiences, okay, this McGinn- McGinnis now cares. He, you know. Yeah. He's not even like, the old McGuinness would have stood over an unconscious Danielson taunting him over how he's lucky to leave with the belt and everything. This is something that I'll reference more with the next episode. Mm-hmm. But that's that's an, a problem I think McGuinness has going forward with being the figure to the fans. that ROH now see it as this is a build job for McGuinness. He can't be around the world title anymore because one of the stipulations is that this was his last chance at the title. And again, he just blew it. You know, he's not quite Lex Luger. But no. he's not, not Lex Luger either in this moment. When there's moments that he should have been rushing in to attack Danielson more as the clock was counting down and he was just really not doing that.
1: So I was about to raise the two minute warning and at the two minute warning, Danielson's on his knees and McGuinness is taunting him to get up. I'm like, yeah. attack him. Don't wait for him to come to you. Just hit him. Kick him in the face. Just do something. <laughs>
0: yeah, like, honestly, my favorite finish to an Iron Man match ever was the Ricky Steamboat-Rick Rude 30-minute Iron Man match they had. I think it was a beach blast night. It was somewhere in 92 in WCW during that great Dangerous Alliance period. And Steamboat got ahead of Rick Rude with 30 seconds to go. And then those 30 seconds of just Rude frantically running around, clotheslining him, knee-dropping him, and every time going for a pin each time, and Ricky Steamboat kicking out of it. Played up the Ricky Steamboat was showing a resilience to stay in ahead, but also the Rick Rude was doing everything that he could, mm. literally everything that he could to get things back to level. That is essentially what McGuinness should have been doing, what Rick Rude was doing. And you can say he was doing it with the elbows, but not really. And it was the elbows were only him reversing Danielson's elbow and again it wasn't him finishing off Danielson with his own stuff but relying on Danielson's stuff to do the job that had worked
1: on him whereas look at how Danielson behaves when he loses that fall straight out of the ring taking his time <laughs> the fan who backs up his point is like oh, I, don't, I don't need to get in and the fan like just goes that's right and Danielson hugs him that's a great <laughs> moment <laughs> Like this guy gets it you know <laughs>
0: So yeah, this is um. I would say all the previous matches are worth watching. I don't know that this is worth watching, except for completest necessity, because it takes a lot of time of your life away. You know, you're fortunate you're dealing with two people without much of a life. Here. <laughs> Ow! Look, you're recording a podcast. You
1: the truest, <laughs> the truest blades are the sharpest, aren't they? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's still good enough. It's good, en- but even like. This is like low-level Danielson, but even low-level Danielson's worth like three and a quarter, three and a half stars. The crowd are still into it, but it's noticeable that they go crazy for the big moves at the end, but they're not at a fever pitch throughout like they were at Unified, where it was just like everyone's on their feet going crazy. There would be just like so suddenly after a big pop from like McGuinness hitting his lariats off the, off the top rope or whatever, it goes hushed quiet like only a few seconds later
1: well not to sound all west ham fan here but you un- uh, unified benefits from the crowd being like right on top of them and having levels where because it's all flat i think from just from an acoustic standpoint crusty the acoustics in here are terrible <laughs> i just i just personally think having your crowd all on one level may i, I might be wrong maybe acoustically doesn't lend itself to having a crowd in a stand
0: I think Danielson worked a match deliberately to try and test himself and to and in reaction to the way that person was behaving in the crowd but it wasn't the match that gets the crowd going in that way and Danielson I think makes adjustments to his style that we'll cover in the next match that is similarly played to a crowd of around that kind of number and around that kind of setup. Mm. And they're maybe more fervent throughout than the unified crowd were.
1: Well, that remains to be seen, of course. Yes,
0: that is our next episode. I mean, did you have anything left that you wanted to say about this match yourself? Like, would you be around that range as a
1: rating, or...? I'm just sort of effectively tacking onto your sentiments, to be honest, Lorcan. With how I've got in my head, it's like um, the Arctic Monkeys intergalactic space hotel like jazz album experiment, sort of, for Danielson. Danielson's like what can i do with this and we aren't seeing him i mean uh long-time listeners will know my thoughts on the mjf versus brian danielson match and that's that's a 60 minute brian danielson in top gear this isn't top gear you're right
0: i think he's working as hard as he ever was and as we said the next match separates his shoulder in the first few minutes And still guts it out for 55 more minutes because that's how it was booked.
1: Yes, but also because he's mental.
0: Yeah, that too. (laughs) We do get headbutts in this match. Not as much as before and not as much as we'll get later, but they still, they'll never... They never go away. I think I'll do a big rant about headbutts at some point, but this isn't the match to do it for. No. But it's like the headlock does make, you know, it's a match about a headlock. But Punk and Samoa Joe did that. That also went 60 minutes, but that is genuinely one of the best matches Ring of Honor had. And this isn't close to it. Is that Danielson's fault? Is that McGuinness's fault? Is that the crowd's fault? Is that the booking's fault?
1: Is that him being aware he's got 60 minutes tomorrow? I don't know. I don't know. All those things.
0: But it does make sense to go for the headlock. Keith McGuinness down on the ground, targets the head that McGuinness was busted up in and everything. Scrambled. And it's, and also just psychologically, it, look, if someone's applying a headlock into the 10th minute, it's obviously going long. Yeah. That's basically the rules of wrestling now. And then the crowd again was co- cognizant of that as well. So they were like, okay, well, we've got to pace ourselves as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. but yeah, like, it's a completist match. yeah. But still better than most matches you get on TV. Oh yeah, absolutely. But not better than most sixty-minute matches, I will say. Like if you have all the sixty-minute matches I've seen, I mean, I think it was Kenny Omega and and Kazuchika Okada that really just changed what the pace of a sixty-minute match could be at that point. Yeah. And no one's really been able to match it since. Then. I mean, we could do. We probably should do. And let me tell you something about marathon matches and sixty-minute matches and Iron Man matches and just <laughs> just the. Try and deliberately make it our shortest episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Simon, what's that you sniffing? I'm getting ready!
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's a shame as well because the title of this show is referencing what was probably seen as, like, another step up in match quality for Ring of Honor, and it was a sign of where Danielson had gone as a wrestler because he'd been away for, like, six months, and then he came back and faced off against Paul London, who got super over in the interim, and they went two minutes, which was by far the, you know... The Days in 42 Minutes was epic. <laughs> you know? That's just like a New Japan main event now. <laughs> and it was like Danielson had gone away and he'd learnt a lot. And he was gathering in confidence. And we kind of are starting to see... We've seen the fruits of that in this run with the title. But it's a shame. It's, it's, a, it's a lesser sequel. But that's another one we should definitely do as a future Match of the Week. Because uh, Paul London is another one of those great what-ifs of wrestling. But that's for another time. But what is for next time, Simon... Is what, where, and for what.
1: So, when, I'll start with first, is the 23rd of June, 2007. So we move along a little bit now in our timeline. It's in Philadelphia. The name of the event is called Driven. And it's for not a belt this time, but it's to become number one contender to the Ring of Honor World Championship.
0: I'll fill everyone in on the history in that episode. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you to recommend other sixty minute matches that are even worse than this one, how can they do so?
1: They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I am so known as Simon Cross free. Free for the number of falls that they were bloody supposed to be in this match. Trading standards. Oh, you'll be hearing from them.
0: My name's Lorcan Mullin. That's L-O R C A N M U L L A N as in the A N it for that starts another shoulder injury. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxing we we'll put at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lntwisepod at gmail.com. Lntwisepod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll stay with us as we continue to rerun the rival. Yeah.